Now, uh, to be honest, at the start of this sermon series, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, the start of this uh, sermon series, I had a fear. Um, I feared what we might call the succinctness of Mark's gospel. Maybe you see what I mean. Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, much longer, right? The accounts are more detailed, aren't they? Uh, You might say John's gospel... You might say that John's Gospel is more uh, theological. What do we notice about Mark's Gospel in the sermon series? The accounts are kind of brief, aren't they? They are very succinct. They are very concise. And there was me right at the beginning of the sermon series panicking about this. You know, scared. What is this going to mean for sermon preparation? How How is this to be preached? Rarely, I suppose, is the succinctness of Mark's Gospel more evident than in what you have got in front of you just now. This morning, what we're going to look at? We're looking at Jesus before Pontius Pilate. So we're looking at Jesus' Roman trial. And if you know your Bibles quite well, you'll see, wait a minute, there's a few things missing in Mark's Gospel. Isn't there? There's no mention of Pilate's handwashing. There's no mention of Pilate's wife in her dream, is there? There's no mention of this sort of theological discussion that Pilate has with Jesus. There's no mention of Jesus before Herod. No mention of any of that. It's stripped down. But now that we're here, now that we're actually in Mark's gospel, I think the succinctness of all of this is actually a positive thing. And you see maybe why? Because we've just got the bare bones in front of us just now, surely it is going to be easier for us to appreciate the the key elements of Jesus' trial. Isn't that right? I mean, we've just got the acoustic version of, of the Roman trial. We've just got the skeleton. We've got the bare bones of this in front of us. So surely the key truths here will shine, right? And they will shine forth from the text. You know as well as I do uh, that there's any number of ways that we could approach a portion of scripture like this. Tell you how I want us to do it this morning. I really want us to, to look at a number of character studies, if you like. You know, for us just now to look at the people that are mentioned... In Mark chapter 15, one by one, to look at the groups of people, the people, the characters, and to see what God has to say to you, to me, from these characters. Okay, so character studies in in Mark 15. And the first of these, to get things rolling, to kick things off, let's consider the chief priests. And I think what we see from them, the chief priests, is single-mindedness in opposition. So you're ready? Character studies, the chief priests. Shall we go with this? Okay. Now, just in case you're visiting this morning, or just in case you were not here, or just in case your memory is as appalling as your ministers, um, then let me just remind you uh, what's just happened. Now, a moment ago, there have been two simultaneous interrogations taking place. We're here last week. Do you remember that? Two simultaneous interrogations. Because you had the Apostle Peter. Do you remember that he was being interrogated? He was being questioned in the courtyard of the high priest. Now, what was happening at the same time as Peter was being interrogated? Upstairs in the high priest's house, 
Our Lord, too, was facing a questioning. He was facing an interrogation at the hands of the religious elite. Now, you see now what I mean. Two concurrent, simultaneous interrogations taking place. That's just happened in the background. Now, as we come into this text this morning, I think you can notice that time has just not moved on all that much. Because those interrogations were happening in the the midst of the night, through the night. And now look at verse 1. Look at it. We're told that as soon as it was morning, look what the chief priests do. They hold a, what's the word, a consultation with the elders and scribes. Now, here's the thing. Don't think that consultation as a separate event, please. You know, it's just a sort of continuation of this interrogation process with Jesus. But still, do we not learn something? In fact, are we not showing something abhorrent there? I mean, consider, friends, the amount of wicked planning that went into the death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? We consider the scheming and the plan. Do, do we think of this as a sort of rash mistake that the Sanhedrin made? Is that it? Do we think it was just this kind of impulsive decision to put the Lord Jesus Christ, something that they would go on to regret? No, it's not like that. There was a consultation process. I mean, they, they planned this, they slept on it, they thought about it, they orchestrated it, they, they organized it. Isn't, it. isn't that something, do you see there, the wickedness in the heart of man? They planned it out. Do you know what? It gets worse. Just think about uh, what happens next. So you see it, they interrogate Jesus. As soon as it's morning, they consult. What do they do? They now bind your Lord. They tie him. They take him through the streets. And they take him to trial with Pilate. Now, boys and girls, I know there's a lot of the boys and girls are away still, but those who are here better listen up. (laughs) Boys and girls, can you remember why they had to take, the chief priest had to take Jesus to Pilate? I wonder if you remember. I'll tell you. Okay, not so that you're not on the spot. It's because they didn't have the authority to kill Jesus. They desperately wanted to put Jesus to death, but they needed Roman approval. So what do they do after this consultation? They tie Jesus. They take him to Pilate. Now, friends, if you were here a few weeks ago, you'll remember that the chief priests have a plan at this point, don't they? Do you remember the plan? They have met to agree the charge that they are going to level against Jesus before Pilate. They all agreed. you remember? We're going to accuse him of blasphemy, which they change here slightly to, he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. They have this plan. Let's stick to the plan. You see? One charge. Now look to see actually what happens. Look at verse 3. Look at it. Despite this plan, one charge, they still accuse the Lord of many, many, many things. Now, do you see what that tells us? Do you see what's happening? These chief priests are so eager to have Jesus executed. Their plan goes out the window. They just, they're so desperate to see him killed. They can't help themselves. They can't help but chuck further accusation, further abuse at our Lord. Isn't it appalling? We see that they are planning this and we see that they are passionate about it. There's one final thing about the chief priests here. 
I think uh, when Adrian came up and read this, I think we know this, or certainly we recognized it when, when this portion of scripture was read out. Pilate's got a tradition. Pilate's got a custom at Passover time, doesn't he? What does he do when it gets to Passover time? He releases a prisoner, uh, doesn't he? Now, we will have to look at that in a moment or two, this idea that he releases a prisoner. We'll look at that. For the time being, friends, would you just look at how the chief priests react to this idea? Have a look at verse 11. So it gets through to this process where Pilate is going to release a prisoner. He suggests the name of Jesus. Look how the chief priests react. We see the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release for them. What does it say? To release for them Barabbas instead. Isn't that... Come on, look at it. I know you're familiar with it. Look at it with new eyes. Isn't it a horrific thing? I mean, not just the fact that they're stirring up the crowd. To be honest, we kind of expect that from them. I'm talking about the last two words there. What were they? They stir up the crowd to have Pilate release for them. Barabbas. Instead. Who's Barabbas? He's a murderer. He's a wicked man. He's the, the, the worst of men. And such is their desperation to kill Jesus. They want a murderer instead of our Lord. They want a murderer instead of the Prince of Peace. They want a murderer instead of one who's never done any harm, never done any wrong, never raised his hand in anger to anyone. They want Barabbas instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. You read this. And aren't you appalled as a Christian? Doesn't it mean something to you? This relentless opposition, this obsession to kill Jesus. We look at this and what do we see? I think we see the reality of spiritual warfare. We look at this, we see the reality of spiritual opposition and we see it as clear as day. Now we've got a bit to cover this morning. I don't want to linger here. I do want to say this to you. I think the church today, maybe especially in the West, we are grossly underestimating the extent of the opposition that we face. We're grossly underestimating the opposition. The church, Christians throughout the world today, what is happening? Can I tell you that Mark chapter 15 is happening today? That throughout the world against the church, Satan is waging war. Satan is waging war against Christ, against his body, the church. This is happening today. Satan is stirring up these, these, these gormless people, if you like. Stirring up very often, as here, religious leaders. Stirring them up to hound the people of God. Stirring them up to oppose the message of truth. Now, I have a question for you, Christian friend. How are you responding to that? How are we responding to the reality of satanic oppression, opposition? Isn't it true that it really doesn't register with us very often? If we're honest, do we think an awful lot about the opposition the church faces? Aren't we a little bit too relaxed about this? Well, this morning, do you see what God is doing in his word? He is confronting you with this reality. Surely... Surely what we do is give ourselves now to fervent prayer. Because what do you see when you look at Mark 15? What's God showing us? We see here that some men will stop at nothing. 
They will stop at nothing to oppose the gospel of God. That cannot pass you by. Christian friends, that must not pass you by. So we see, it's the first group of people. We see the chief priests. Let's move on, okay? Second character study. Let's consider Pilate next, okay? Pilate. And uh, we saw single-mindedness. Second here, Pilate, we see spinelessness. Uh, spinelessness in the face of truth. All right. I think we've done this before in the past, but let's do it again. If you were asked to name the biggest, baddest villains in all of human history, who would you go for? I think probably if we were going around, everyone's going to say the same thing. Maybe everyone would go for Adolf Hitler, I would hope. Uh, who else would we go for? Maybe some people are going to go for Joseph Stalin, something like that, maybe. I think though, if we're thinking about it biblically, biggest villains, biggest baddies, maybe the name Pontius Pilate, some of us would, would mention. Let's face it, Pontius Pilate does not have a particularly good and um, healthy reputation, certainly not in the church. Okay, now, what we've got to do with that is ground it in truth, biblical reality. Okay, so who's Pontius Pilate? Who is he? What, what do you know? What do we know about Pontius Pontius Pilate. Well, Pontius Pilate was what was called the Roman prefect. Nothing to do with school. But the Roman prefect for the region of Judea. Now, boys and girls, that idea of prefect is the idea of a ruler or the sort of governor of the area. So he's a powerful man. Can I say he's more than just a powerful man? He was a hard man. Like, I think a lot of the time we've got a picture of Pilate being meek. Don't we? He was anything but. He was a strong man. He was a harsh, you know, ruling with an iron fist. He was a man who lived usually in Caesarea. That was his residence. But every year at Passover time, he would come down to live in Jerusalem so that he could oversee with power, oversee all of those crowds that gathered together for the festival. So we get an idea of who Pilate was. Don't we? This hard man, the strong man, powerful ruler. Now this is how I want us to do this character study. I just want us, very simple, I just want us to note the two things that God tells us about Pilate in this portion of scripture. God makes two things very clear about Pilate and I want you to make sure you get both of these. First one is this. We see here how convinced Pilate was that Jesus was entirely innocent. How convinced he was. Would you allow me to again speak to the boys and girls just for a moment? Now boys and girls, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to use your, your uh, imagination for this one, okay? So let's go for this. You ready? You're gonna have to listen, and you're gonna have to use your imagination. So let's say you had a really bad argument with your brother or sister or a friend in school. Now, I told you you'd have to use your imagination because you, you, know, you never argue with your brothers and sisters or anyone at school. But let's see. Let's pretend that you did have a terrible argument. Okay? And ferocious. So you're shouting at the person. That person's been really horrible at you and they're shouting back to you. Next thing, a person goes away, comes back. Do you know what they do? That person's been horrible to you. Offers to do you a favor. Now, how are you going to react to that? If you're anything like me, you're going to be a little bit suspicious, are you? If they were being horrible to you a minute ago, now they're asking you, you know, offering to do a favor. That seems a little bit weird, doesn't it? A little bit suspicious. What you have to understand 
is that that's what's happening in Mark chapter 15. Do we understand? Do we get it? The Jews hated Pilate. And he was ruling with an iron fist. They hated Pilate. Pilate hated them. Now what's happening here? The door goes at Pilate's residence first thing in the morning. The Jews are there. And what are they, what are they saying? We're here to do you a favor. You understand? They've arrived with this criminal, haven't they? And what's the charge? King of the Jews. What is that? It's a, a charge of treason. Treason against... Treason against Pilate, really? Treason against Rome? You see, we're here to do you a favor, Pilate. I think from the outset here, friends, Pilate opens that door. He sees Jesus and he is suspicious about all of this. Now, notice how that suspicion is fueled. So what happens next? Pilate invites Jesus in. And what does he do? He interrogates Jesus. He questions Jesus. Look at verse 5. Do you see how, how Pilate reacts? We are told that he was amazed at our Lord. And do you see what's happening there? I think that suspicion is being confirmed. Like I think the penny is dropping for this Roman ruler. He's interviewing Jesus and he's saying, this is a stitch up. This man hasn't done anything. You see it's been confirmed for him. And do you want, friends, the cherry on top? Look at verse 10. Look how explicit God makes it for you. We're told that soon Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest delivered up. Did you see it? He's left in no doubt whatsoever. He can even understand the motivation. He realizes this man before him, he's clear of blame. He's clear of guilt. This man is what? What's the word here? Jesus. What does he see? This man is, he's innocent. He's in Entirely innocent. So that's the first thing about Pilate. There is a second thing. And I honestly think if we engage with it, it breaks our heart. Because we have to notice how unwilling Pilate was to take a stand. Because friends, put yourself there. He realizes that Jesus is innocent, that he hasn't done this. What would you say Pilate does? He does nothing. He does nothing. And aren't you almost screaming at the text? Aren't you screaming at Pilate saying, Why, when you knew this, did you not release our Lord? Why did you have him scourged? Why did you do nothing? And, and really, we don't need to ask that question because the text tells us. Do you see it in verse 15? We are told that he sent Jesus off to death. Why? Because, look at it, he was wishing to satisfy whom? the crowd and you Christian friend can see what that means can't you he is scared this great ruler is scared of the people outside this crowd that is gathered these Jews are restless they've been stirred up well and yes Jesus he knows is innocent but what's the problem Jesus is not worth the hassle isn't that it this Roman governor has a choice he can choose the Christ, or he can choose the crowd, and he chooses the easy way out. Now, I, I want to ask you where you stand spiritually this morning. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love the Lord God? Are you a member of London City Presbyterian Church? I want you to remember 
how good God has been to you. Now, God is not, in his grace, he's not placed you in the sticks somewhere where there's no people, is he? He's not placed you in a wilderness. He's not placed you in a desert. In God's grace, he has placed you in London. A place for millions and millions of people. A place like bursting with ideas and bursting with beliefs. It's marvelous, isn't it? I want to say to you, remember that in the power of the Holy Spirit, what an impact even a small group of people like us can have in a city like this. Really, this city can be transformed by even a small group of believers empowered by the Holy Spirit. Marvelous what could be achieved. There is a problem. The elephant in the room. We as Christians in London, not just us, generally speaking, we are following Pilate's lead. What were the two things? We know that Jesus is innocent. We know the truth about Jesus. We know he's more than innocent. We know he's guiltless. He is blameless. He's sinless. He is the son of God. We know it. We see it clearly. But what's the second thing? What's the elephant in the room for the church? Often, we are not willing to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ before the crowd. Isn't that right? Isn't that true of you and true of me? It's so risky to identify, to, to stand with Jesus at work, isn't it? That's a really risky thing to do, to stand for Jesus at school or at university and amongst our peers. You know, it potentially involves upsetting the crowd. So what happens? What do we do? We follow Pilate's lead. We wilt back. We shrink back. Consider what God is doing for you this morning. Consider it spiritually. God this morning is giving you in Pilate a picture of cowardice. Isn't that a challenge for you, for me? We should be disgusted by Pilate. And we should go, we should be resolved to go out into London and do what? To care so much less about the reaction of the crowd. So we see the chief priests, single-mindedness. We see Pilate and we see spinelessness. But then a third character study is Barabbas. Barabbas and substitution for the worst of men, Barabbas. Um, if you're visiting LCPC this morning, maybe you don't know much about the life of the congregation. Maybe you don't know who we are. We're not just a congregation. Uh, we are part of a network of churches called a denomination. We're Presbyterian. Uh, we are part of what is called the Free Church of Scotland. Okay? Network of churches, a denomination. Free Church of Scotland. We in the Free Church of Scotland love tradition. We really do. I don't know what it is about. I think it's a worldwide phenomenon, actually. I don't know what it is about Presbyterian and Reformed churches, but we love certain customs and ways. We like tradition. Isn't that, isn't that true? I think it's true, particularly if Presbyterian Reformed circles. I think Pilate must have been cut from the same cloth. Because let's return to this tradition that he's got, this custom that he's got. Now you saw what it was, did you? Every year, what does he do? Passover time comes, he releases one prisoner, one identified prisoner. He does so at the feast every year. He's got a tradition, he's got this custom of doing that. Now, you see, friends, do you, the choice given to the crowd. This Passover, 
They can choose to release and free Jesus, or they can choose to release Barabbas. Barabbas, obviously a man who's already been sentenced and condemned, because we were told he's already imprisoned. Can I describe Barabbas to you like this? He was a terrorist. Isn't that something that we know a little bit too much about in London and throughout the world today? He was a a terrorist. He was a rebel. He was an insurgent. He had taken part in what was clearly an infamous uprising in Jerusalem where it looks as though he may have killed many, many people uh, for his cause. He's a, a terrorist. Who do they choose? They choose Jesus or the terrorist. They choose the terrorist. Now you consider this. Consider what happens here. Barabbas, the guilty man, is liberated. He is freed. And what happens? The Lord Jesus Christ, the innocent man... He is sentenced to death in his place. (laughs) Don't you think we could talk about the injustice of this till the cows come home? Don't you think we could be here till midnight talking about the injustice of this? I do not want us to do that. I long for you to see the picture of the gospel that God is giving you through this wicked man. Because if you are a Christian this morning, you born again, I'm asking you, who's Barabbas? You are Barabbas. Isn't that it? I mean, we are, what does the Bible tell us? What does it tell us? We are rebels. Aren't we? We are terrorists. We are insurgents. We've rebelled. Not against Rome, not against Jerusalem, we've rebelled against the almighty sovereign God. Do you see? Look at Barabbas. We are criminals. Maybe not murderers, but by our very nature. What are we? We are lawbreakers. Just the same yet. What is the good news that we as the people of God have to proclaim to London? That we are criminals. But the Lord Jesus Christ has stood in our place. Isn't that everything? Isn't that the wonder of the good news? Though we, like Barabbas, deserve death, though we deserve to hang on the center cross between the other two insurgents, though we deserve eternal punishment, what has Christ done for us? What has he done? He has, look at Mark 15, he has become our replacement That is the glory of the gospel. That is the beauty of the gospel. We are like Barabbas. We are criminals. But we in the gospel, liberated. Freed. As we see the Lord Jesus Christ become for us our substitute. You have the gospel before you. And then we end with this. We end here, okay, in just a word. We've seen the chief priest, we've seen Pilate, we've seen Barabbas. We can't end this without a word about Jesus and his silence for our salvation. Again, I question you and I ask you if you are born again this morning and if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian in here, can I also ask you, is your heart not moved by the events that have been read out to you today. 
Now, there's an author that you'll have heard of, a minister called G.C. Ryle. And he says that there should be a special sort of reverence that comes over the people of God when we consider the events and the verses that we've read today. Is that true? I think it's true. I mean, Christian friend, consider what Jesus endured. Verse 1 tells us he was bound. The Son of God tied. We're told that he was dragged through the streets of Jerusalem early in the morning. Can you imagine the shame? As people see him dragged through the ignominy of it all. Now, the children are here. So I'll say that he was scourged. But I cannot describe it to you. Not in the presence of the children. It was an ordeal far too awful and horrific. And then he's sentenced to the most vicious of deaths. The most terrible of deaths. Even though the judge, even though the one who sentences him knows that he is innocent. Isn't it horrendous? Yet, how does he respond? What is it that our Lord says here throughout? Yes, he confirms that he is king over a supernatural, spiritual realm. What does he, what was it that amazed Pilate in verse 5? It was the fact that just as Jesus had done in the Sanhedrin, here he says, All of these many abuses and accusations are hurled at our Lord. And he says not a word. He remains silent. And I want to end by reminding you, Christian friend, what that silence was about. Can you remember? Was it because he was frightened? Was he scared? Was he hesitant? Was it anxiety? No. Jesus was silent here because he was desperate to submit to the will of his father. He was acquiescing to all that was taking place around. You know as well as I do, Jesus needed to just mention a word to Pilate. He would have been free. Just a couple of words. He would have been released without charge. And he says nothing. Not a word. So as you leave this morning... If you're a Christian, I I want you to understand what that silence means for you. See in that silence before Pilate how much the Lord Jesus Christ must love you. You understand that the silence was for you. That he yielded to all of this and he did so for you. That the Lord Jesus Christ consented to death and he did so out of a commitment to win your soul from death. You must look at this and see, my Lord cares for me. My Lord, he loves me. And so we leave and we do so with adoration in our hearts, wonder in our hearts, don't we? I said at the start of the sermon that Mark's account was succinct and concise, didn't I? In the bare bones, what do you see? You see, not just the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ stood in your place. What do you see? You see that he did that willingly. May the wonder of that inspire worship from you today. But may the wonder of that inspire
witness from you tomorrow. And may it all be for the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.